Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. I invite you to join me on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as a participant in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. All right, today I am honored and excited to welcome John Jordan to our podcast. He is an Anglican priest who works as a headmaster for Coram Deo Academy Dallas campus. And I've gotten to know him this past year because I work part-time for Coram Deo Academies. And I have been very um, energized when I visit his school to see the uh beauty of the teaching in the classrooms, the way the teachers and the students interact with one another. And recently, John gave some really important talks at our classical um, education training for uh, Quorum Deo Academy. And he also put out some wonderful emails for parents that I thought were worth discussing. So I invited him to come on the show and we'll start off by asking John to tell us about his work and how he was called into classical education. So John, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Um, I think like many people, I found my way in a sense through the back door into classical Christian education. I um, had a history and education degree for undergraduate and had taught previously in Dallas Independent School District and worked for Young Life, a a ministry to high school students in the Richardson area, and was starting seminary and just had a kind of an itch to get back into the classroom, but I couldn't shake the sense of ministry calling that was also happening. And so I I met with a number of people, and really I found Coram Deo Academy through their Flower Mound campus for a part-time history job that was open and interviewed for it and loved what I heard about classical education. I had honestly heard, known very little of it before that interview, researched a lot for the next couple of weeks. And the more that I researched, the more I I realized a couple of things. One, this this seems to be um, the best model that I'm aware of at forming Christian students, the, the classical tradition, I think, is, 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 the, is a very rich way to do that. And two, some of my favorite parts of teaching and learning, I never knew came from this movement. And so it was, a, it was, a, it was confirming in that sense. So I started teaching at Coram Deo's Flower Mound campus and just attended every summer conference I could, read every book that I could, and just became enthralled with classical education. I was married at the time, but we didn't have any children yet. And as we started to have our, our children, we have three three kids. Um, I, I, I had enough of the Kool-Aid to know that <laughs> I was going to somehow classically educate my children. So um, along that way, I moved from the Flower Mound campus to our Dallas campus to help start the high school there. So we, we are currently in our first year of having seniors at the Dallas campus. Our rhetoric school is now fully built out. It has been a beautiful um, moments, moment for our community here at the Dallas campus. And, and um, somewhere in that mix, I also kind of left the Reformed Baptist tradition that I was in and went, went uh, down the Canterbury Trail and became Anglican and then eventually ordained as a, a priest as well. So my um, 
those two callings of classical teaching and classical school leadership and uh, my pastoral calling have a, a whole lot of overlap, though, though it does mean that I'm tired a lot too. So. Yes, yes, yes. Well, I just noticing what I've noticed in the classical education movement is it is one area where I feel like all of our Christian differences come together and we are all like-minded yes. <laughs> when it comes to educating the whole person in a way that is true and good and beautiful. And so I love that. I think that's that's beautiful and it makes sense to me that it works um for for your faith. Yes. You know, it was actually one of my early observations. I wound up teaching the first year and for many, many years, and I teach it now at the Dallas campus, our senior theology class. And I was from the earliest days of class in 2010, blown away by how much our students who were from different church backgrounds and different Christian traditions respected one another and respected one another's churches. And when they graduate, they are entering another stage of interaction with culture viewing their fellow Christians as allies and not focusing so much on on what divides us um, that we do a lot of the in-house bickering that I have seen elsewhere that I saw right. in seminary, like like many of us, right? Sure. So it was, that was one of the refreshing visions of just something about this model has trained students and families to be unified in a historic Christian faith, um, though we have our different expressions of that. It's true. Well, classical education done well, with rightly ordered loves is going to be accepting of people of different, of different faiths, period. Um, and we'll talk about that when we get into our virtue discussion today. Great, great. I'm, I'm, that's totally going to come out because I want to talk to you about uh, virtues because that's really important to this interview. But before we get into uh, the virtues and what they are and how they can be applied in the classroom, I wanted to talk about your big 10. I was so impressed with this when I got the emails uh, that you sent out to parents. And I thought, wow, I think this could be a really helpful model for other headmasters, school leaders to think about how, how this can create uh, a unity between uh, parents and teachers and the school culture. Um, school culture is a big topic that's not discussed a whole lot. And um, I can tell that you have a pretty good grasp on that. So I'd like you to tell our listeners about the Big Ten and why it matters. Yes. So, and I, I think I'm sure we can send a copy and it can go in the show notes just so that folks okay. can see, yes. see it in the flesh. I think that would be would be easiest. But um, the, the Big Ten emerged for three specific reasons that I'll share in a minute. But it is, before we begin talking about it, it is a, a list of the 10 things um, that we are most about as a Christian learning community. So what we aimed to do was take all of our policies and procedures and and funnel those into 10 positive statements. That was a key for us, and we'll, we'll hear some of that in a moment, that describe who we are as a school. And the reason we, um, I worked with our, our three principles, grammar, logic, and rhetoric principles on, on creating these, um, was really threefold. So first, we have been experiencing rapid growth. When my first year at the Dallas campus, I believe we had 116 students. We were pre-K through eighth grade, only meeting on Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday. And shortly after I got there, we started to build out a whole Monday, Wednesday program, and then laid the groundwork for our rhetoric school. And this year, we have 443 students, pre-K through 12, 
um, over, you know, 220 families or so that are being served just at the Dallas campus. So we were growing rapidly and we knew we had to be out in front of that growth, maintaining and creating a culture as a community. Um, the second uh, factor was COVID. We lived through COVID, ran a virtual campus while doing in-person learning in the 2021 school year. Um, and there were so many times that year that we were just so grateful to be in person and to have people with us that some of our previous communal standards got a little bit lax. And I think we were just, we were realizing that coming out of that, we needed a bit, what we jokingly called the grand reset. We needed to, to up the bar again in our community um, amongst faculty and students and families. And then the third factor was we, with that growth, had brought in a, a new kind of group of, of administrators that I'm, I'm so pleased with, um, could not be more pleased um, with, with who God has brought our way to, to help lead this growth. Um, but we needed to make sure that we were all on the same page. So we spent a summer doing this activity of creating what are the, what are the 10 big things for our community, stated positively, um, that each could then link to specific policies if we needed to. And we needed to make sure that our leadership team was unified around that. And then we shared this with all families. That first first year we introduced this a year ago, we had a required all families meetings. We had three or four of them set up and all the principals got up and, and talked through these things. And then now we essentially use it as a, a welcome series for our newest families. And then in our weekly communications, we highlight some of these. So the big 10 is our kind of 10, take take the policy manual, pull out the 10 biggest things that we hope to emphasize, state it positively in a way that paints the picture of a learning community that honestly we're, we're excited to be a part of. And so um, I'll, I'll maybe just list a couple of them and then talk oh, sure. about some that have become our favorites. We wanted to open and close the big 10 with a um, far like bigger picture items. Um, so our first one is that we're all working together in pursuit of Quorum Deo's mission. So it's, and, and on the back of the page, we have a paragraph or so about each of these. We want to make sure that our mission and our distinctives, that we are a classical Christian university model school, that those are front and center. So we, mm -hmm. we are all working together. And this is not a, a teacher is doing something that a family is working against, but rather we and the family and the church are working together to fulfill this mission. And then similarly, we end the Big Ten with, I think, two of the most important ones. Number nine is we resolve conflict like we love each other. And, it, and, and it's just a, there will be conflict. We, we need humans to have a school. And so we're going to make mistakes and need to seek one another's forgiveness. And that one of the things that I think we are most adamant about is being a community that resolves conflict in a way um, that displays our our beliefs. And so we we um we write more about that and we talk more about it, but we resolve conflict in this community like we love each other. And sometimes that means we have to pretend to love each other and and aim to love <laughs> each other. Um, and then finally, our last big ten, and I'll share a couple of other highlights, is that we are here to grow in heart, body, mind, and soul. And the importance of growth and the necessity um especially when talking to parents and students, that growth requires work and pain. There is, there is simply no way around that. 
that intellectual struggle is part of the process and that they should not think that something is wrong if they are if if history has been a breeze and this year it's not um, that's part of the process we we want our students to grow and we should expect there to be struggle and we talk all the time and work with parents and teachers on there's a difference between struggle and suffering right so there's there's a point that it gets to be too much but our purpose is to grow and that's why we're not afraid of conflict and we're not afraid of students who make big mistakes or small mistakes it's not the end of the world it's an opportunity for growth and so trying to just build that growth mindset in our community um is is key so those are some of the the key ones and then there's a, a couple of others that are that are just um, we have found to be helpful in our specific context and bigger. So, for example, um, we dress for the occasion. That was a, an originally a hey, let's get out of COVID when we were just happy to be here. And if you had weird colored pants, we're going to let it fly because we're just here. And to no, we have a we have a uniform, and that the uniform serves a purpose. It tells the person who wears it something about themselves it tells the person that sees them something about themselves so so we dress for the occasion when we are in formal dress we're in formal dress when we have a fun spirit day we we have a fun spirit day but there's a we dress for the occasion um we this this next one is uh i always have our grammar school principal share it because she has a real funny way of doing it and none of us want to be the one to share it but what what essentially where we find ourselves right now is being housed in a Jewish synagogue. And so mm -hmm. in addition to being a campus that has committed to striving to be nut-free, because we have some pretty severe allergies, when we moved to this new location, the year of COVID, which again was a, was a trying year for all of us, uh, we also then needed to commit to not having any pork products on campus. So we just felt like we got to then bear this news of, what essentially it felt like was last year we took away all of your peanut butter and now we're taking away all of your ham and pepperoni. And so <laughs> we were like, how, how do you go about saying this? So one thing that we say is um, one of our big tens is we eat well so that we can learn well. And we, we, that's the section where we talk about our food restrictions. Yes. But also we, we pack a meal that actually has some protein in it. Cause in the middle of the day, we need it. We need a good healthy meal for that. So there's some some pithy ones like that where everybody knows, in a sense, that is code for don't bring pork or shellfish on campus. But we're we're trying to state it in a more positive way. And then I would say the the two that we are probably most excited about, as far as the way um, our principals got together and worked with me to frame them, is that we are safely hospitable. So school safety is, as you know, a a, a in, just incredibly important and yes. timely concern yes. and um and safety is is just incredibly important as is hospitality and so as we go about all of our safety concerns what is the what is the safest way that we can be known for our hospitality so that that section we're safely hospitable we didn't want to just be the safest place on earth um mm -hmm. that's probably underground in norfolk virginia somewhere uh, but we do want to be safely hospitable. And then th the big one that I think has has worked really well in getting our parents on board and even some of our older students on board um, is that we are a place of digital rest. That's the way that we frame that there are no cell phones out and about during the school day. 
um, that with this is a, a time and a place where the distractions of notifications and social media and whatever else comes with a smartphone are put to the side. And um, I have been uh, beating that drum for about a decade. And I will say it has been hardest to convince parents of that. Students put up an initial fight and they say, we want our phones. They very, one, they actually don't. They, they feel the need to fight, but they, they, are, they are overwhelmingly stressed by everything the smartphone offers them. And they, they, want, they want it gone. They just don't want to tell you that they want it gone. What, what has been heartbreaking is that it's the parents that are, that's, that's, that has been one of the hardest struggles. Um, they want their kids to have the phone. And so this, I think phrasing it like this and um, harnessing a, the, the research about uh, smartphones and attention spans and addictions and um, depression and all of the above, um, we've been able to capture by describing this as a place of digital rest. And I think that's language that parents get and understand and that students eventually get and understand as well. That's very interesting. It kind of surprises me that parents would want their kids to have smartphones at school. Uh, yes, and there's, there are plenty that are that are leading the charge on throw them all away, don't ever give them back. You know, but there <laughs> it's just the I think it I think it is the we are and I'm I'm in the generation of of since I could drive had a self we're just so used to being able to text, yeah. hey, you're you're going to practice, go at this time and and the only uh -huh. place that is telling them you can't do that is the school because at church they sure. have it out at their jobs they have it out everywhere they have it out so so that way it was just a little bit of a challenge and just reminding them that humans have gotten along without cell phones and For the students can come to the desk at any moment and 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 they we even <laughs> let them you can even take out your own phone and call your parents because i know you probably don't have their number memorized so but it needs to be done at the desk and at a time and at a place and so that has been a th these have have been helpful in I think the stating them positively, we were probably two weeks into the process before it clicked that that that's going to be the way to go because a, a list of 10 no-nos mm -hmm. um, was not going to be what, what this community needed at, at this time to to right. stay unified and, and have a culture and, and recover from COVID in that sense. So Yeah, no, I, I think the Big Ten is brilliant and I really, I'm excited that we're going to put it in the show notes because I think it will be very helpful to a lot of uh, headmasters, school leaders mm -hmm. to consider doing something like this for their own school as well. I think it's brilliant and very well um, articulated. It's It's been put together very, very beautifully. It's very well done. Well, thank you. <laughs> yes. Uh, the other question I have, because I really want to focus on headmasters uh, and helping them in this episode, how can you, on a real practical level, uh, encourage headmasters of classical schools to support their staff and their families who enroll in a classical school? Yeah. Well, um, I have some things that I either try to do that I think might might fit the bill um, or that I really want to try to do. There are, every profession has so, so much going on behind the scenes that it's, it's hard that we don't always see um, a, a headmaster is no different. There's there is nobody on a campus that knows all that goes on, um, big and small, 
and 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 so there there is there is a lot going on and i i think um the the couple of things that i would share right now are either things that i have i have tried to do and they have worked well or that i am just really trying to to do well and i don't think i'm doing them well yet but i think they're important um when even in the midst of of mm -hmm. feeling underwater so um the, probably the first and foremost for the because this is something that that is to be done with staff in a certain way with parents in a certain way and with students in a certain way is to be um almost more than you think is necessary remind them why we're here remind mm -hmm. them about what is unique and distinct about the classical tradition um compare it often to to other other options um, we we tell our families in previews when when potential families are visiting the school that there are there are a lot of ways to educate your child that are easier than this one, and um, and you'll actually still finish with a child and and they'll learn some things and so there are easier models. This is the harder way, um, and we think it's worth it. But but you've got to know it's the harder way and you've got to know why. So. I think the more we can um, educate families on on what we mean by classical, I think more people, and, and I'm in this boat too, all of us are to some extent, more people are drawn to classical education than fully understand what it means to to be okay, educated classical. Sure. And that's a perennial yes. problem, and as it should be. Ah, that's that's just why good, I have this podcast. <laughs> exactly, exactly, right? And that's a, that's a good sign. If we could um, – plumb the depths of the tradition in a podcast, then it's not a very worthy tradition. So it's it's a good thing, but there are, there's constant things to do. So some ways that we do that is every summer, we do have a summer email series that that is scheduled, call it every other week or so over the summer that I tend to write. Sometimes the principals will, will play a part in it as well. And it just takes something in the classical Christian tradition. And while there's a break from the busyness of school life in the summer, it it kind of gives these emails to families that they read or they file away to read when they're on vacation. This past year, for example, we did the virtues as moral muscles. That was the email series that that we did. And then I shared with our, our staff. So um, in the school year, um, we work on having some of our teachers and principals put content out about once a month to just say, here's, here's one other, um, it, here's what you've got to know about narration and, and why it, um, why we would emphasize it so much. What, what happens, I think one of the best things to do is just show a, a child that narrates from pre-K through 12th grade has formed this particular strength compared to a similarly aged child that has not done that. And just to paint that yes. picture. Um, yes. And our, we share articles. There's a great, it was, it's five or six years ago now, but there's a great article in the Washington Post um, from somebody fairly high up at, at a tech company that basically said, we don't need more folks entering STEM majors. We need more liberal arts undergrads joining the STEM workforce. And, and mm -hmm. I've, I've read similar, similar articles for accounting and all they're like, you don't, you don't need a four-year degree to learn basic accounting. If, if you go and study the liberal arts or philosophy for four years, we can train you in house in six months to handle the accounting software and the math, like what's required for it. Um, teaching families and reminding them and students and faculty that we are laying a broad foundation that serves as a launching off point for their students. Um, right. So all that to say, one is just reminding and, and teaching the tradition 
Um, we have we started last year something called Classical Night School, where we open up our school at night and parents enroll in classes and they come to a short lecture that I give on something related to classical education. And then they break off and go into our classrooms and our teachers teach a lesson like they would. I love that. I didn't classroom. even know you and were it, doing that. It was That's it was beautiful. so fun. We did a kind of a trial run of it last fall and and had a waiting list and it was it was a whole lot of fun. But That's just giving great. them tastes of that um is is super helpful. And that that will feed your faculty as much as it will feed your families. The the constant yes. reminders of why we are classical and what and what we're what we're doing. I think the second um, newer kind of thing that I'm trying to do um, is to talk about our school as being several different realms. And this has especially helped our leadership team, um, that the grammar school is a realm of responsibility that our grammar school principal is ultimately responsible for. And my role is to then support her and make sure that she has everything that she needs to make that happen. Um, and then to be a, a peer that can counsel her and we can bounce ideas off of one another as we're, as um, issues come up or conflicts arise or new ideas emerge. Um, our ath athletics department is its own realm. And we, we read, <clears throat> you know, a, a little bit of, of Tolkien's return of the King and, and, and had Gandalf talking about the, the rule of no realm is mine, but I'm here to, to bring life to, to the the remnants of life that exist in this realm. So we the the from from a practical level and from a big picture level, giving ownership of these realms to the people we've hired to lead those realms. We were we the the previous head of of the campus where I serve um, was very much a everything went through her, and so it was it was it was sometimes in some stages of some schools' life that might need to happen that the head does absolutely everything and all new ideas come from the head and and ultimate ownership went there and we had to work through that and work out of that um and there's been some real fruit that's been born because a, a logic school principal and a rhetoric school principal are going to have better ideas for what their school needs than i will um and so this this concept of realm ownership was something we introduced last school year and then this past summer, after a year of using that language, each of those realm leaders were given a strategic planning packet that they kind of went off for a day or so and worked through um, that asked them to articulate a vision for their realm and what are the you know three-year and five-year goals, what, what this year do they want to implement that's new, what's that exciting idea that they want to do now but should probably wait a year or two to do. That that sort of thing, and then I just had the joy of meeting with all of them and and hearing their great ideas. And I kick them off campus twice a month, each for an hour. They have to go to a coffee shop where there are, are fewer interruptions, and and work through that strategic planning. In the summer, when you had a moment, you wrote that you wanted the school to look like X. Then the first month of school happened, and you had no time oh. to work on any of that. Go, go, take time, make time, and and work through those things. So giving ownership um, and and being a support, leading those who lead the school is, is what we have, have worked towards developing here. And it's, it's bearing some real fruit. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. I'd like to take a quick break from this conversation to make our, listen to, our listeners aware of a new series of introductory 
webinar style courses. These one hour courses are designed to help parents and teachers become familiar with the liberal arts tradition. If you would like to know more about classical education and experience the joy and the beauty of this tradition, join us for our snapshot series. Currently, our snapshots of the great conversations, as well as snapshots of the literary tradition, are open for registration. Each class is a standalone class and is only one hour. Take one or take them all. For up-to-date course lists, you can visit us at beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. Again, beautifulteaching.coursestorm.com. And look for our snapshot series to see what might interest you. Thank you for listening. And now let's return to the show. Recently, you gave a talk for our classical education training in-house on virtues. I heard you mention it about the moral, uh, the moral muscles and the virtues. Mm-hmm. So I'd like you to... Uh, Tell our listeners what, um, kind of give us an outline of what uh, you shared with our staff and the practical applications of virtue in a classical school. Yeah. Um, so I, I think I started um, reading as much as I could about the virtues. Um, I, the classical tradition talks a lot about the virtues similar to the word classical if you go up to a teacher in our school and say, tell me about the virtues, their face will light up. And then when you say, no, actually use your words and tell me about the virtues, it's harder. And so we, I just, I've, I've, it came to be that through reading and a a ton of this is, is Aquinas um, and, and some Augustine, some Aristotle and some Lewis making sense of all of them. But there was a, a bit of a paradigm shift that I had in reading all of these in, in the way I thought about virtues compared to the way I think about them now. And it was one of those moments where I had that paradigm shift and had to tell somebody. So I told our faculty at just the Dallas campus, I, I said, we, I, I think thinking about the virtues in this way will help us better understand our students when they fall short and our students when they succeed. I think it'll help us understand our own shortcomings um, and I think it helps paint a far more hopeful um, vision of what we're trying to do in developing wisdom and virtue in our students. And then I, it, it was just this, this key that unlocked the human as a moral being to me. So I, so I just had to share it. So I shared it with our faculty. I shared it with our families over the summer and then with our kind of all three campuses faculty together shared a little bit. And the, the, the rough outline is this, and I didn't get to get into all of this, but I, I have in other avenues. Um, the, the biggest premise is to think about the virtues as moral muscles and that they, they don't just work kind of like muscles, but they actually are muscles. They just happen to be invisible ones. Everything that is true of our physical muscles is true of our of our virtues. So if I have to um, do an exercise to strengthen my bicep, and then through some pain and some recovery, it grows stronger as a result of that exercise, that's true of my temperance muscle, my moral mm-hmm. no muscle. Um, that the, if I leave alone, if I leave my bicep alone and don't don't exercise it it grows weaker. It doesn't even just stay stagnant. It actually gets weaker. That's true of my fortitude muscle, my moral yes muscle, that if we don't exercise these muscles, they will naturally, it'll lead to atrophy. They will grow weaker. 
And if you carry that a little bit further and you think about forms of exercise, something like a push-up is not a motion you would use in, a, in the game of basketball. If, if you like are on the ground doing a push-up during a basketball game, you're doing something wrong. But that's an exercise that strengthens the muscle that you actually need to perform in basketball. And so there are prescribed by the church throughout the ages, there actually are exercises for each of our moral muscles. And the exercise itself is not the point, um, but it strengthens the muscle for when you need it most. So temperance and fasting is probably the easiest one to see. Fasting is strengthening your no muscle when it doesn't matter. So skipping meat on Fridays during Lent does not automatically make you holier, but you are exercising your no muscle once a week. And that same muscle is what helps you say no to temptation or no to overreacting. And if you have a weak muscle, you can't expect a student, oh, a student with a weak temperance muscle can't be expected to say no to blurting something out in class. Um, but if you exercise that muscle, you know, chocolate, steak, whatever is not, is not the point. The point is you're saying no and you're strengthening that no muscle for when it will really matter that you know how to say no. And each of the cardinal virtues, um, the kind of the core muscle groups that God endows every human with, each of those have specific ways to strengthen them and weaken them over time. Um, the theological virtues, these special gifts of grace, these special strengths given to Christians through the, through the Holy Spirit of faith, hope, and charity, we are given them as gifts, and they're absolutely gifts. And yet they're gifts that we've also been given the responsibility to nourish and to, to develop. And so there's, there are ways to exercise your faith muscle and your charity muscle. And, um, and then it, it goes on from there, and we could talk a whole lot more about it. But um, if you kind of follow this through, in short, I'll just say this. The virtues are these moral muscles, and there are four cardinal, three the theological, and then almost an endless number of practical virtues. The, the cardinal and theological virtues make you who you should be. They're muscles that make you who you should be. And all of the practical virtues give you the strength to do what you need to do. And so those both have to be done in tandem. So your virtues are moral muscles. This would make the vices these moral diseases that eventually destroy moral muscles. And there's lots of ways you can catch a, a, a vice. Uh, neglect can lead to a vice, trauma unhealthy habits, right? So virtues, moral muscles, vices are moral diseases. And then the spiritual disciplines are these healthy habits that serve as exercises to strengthen specific muscles. Um, hmm. and, and, and then what caps this all at the end that I only got to allude to in the talk, but I've written a lot about elsewhere, is that the church calendar is actually a prescribed annually rotating prescription of exercises for these various muscles throughout the year. And so Lent is the temperance muscle season. And if you follow the, but, but there's also a, a number of other fasting seasons and feasting seasons. And if you, if you kind of walk through the church calendar, which is simply a reliving of the life of Jesus every single year, mm -hmm. then you are exercising all of the muscles that, that, makes a whole human being and you're doing that in the footsteps of jesus the whole human being and his his life and ministry so that yeah. was way more of a nutshell than i'm comfortable with but that's the 
a, a, a framework for thinking about the moral muscles that has led to wonderful conversations with students and parents and fellow teachers who have have it just lets you see the human yeah. as a as a moral being in a way that that it's okay i don't have to get so mad at this fifth grader that cannot stop blurting out but i can introduce a one minute let's exercise our moral no muscle into class for all of us to to exercise that together um and and have a little bit of of sympathy and and um grace for the student that just may be very loud and maybe very popular but has a tiny tiny temperance muscle embarrassingly mm-hmm. weak and um let's partner with the parents in in diagnosing that and maybe even prescribing some some ways to strengthen it over time i love that i really love that i i love it so much because it's not just about Oh, we're a school who teaches virtues, so we're going to read all these stories and talk about the virtues. You're actually doing. The virtues have to be something that you're doing and a right. habit within yourself as a whole person. You're addressing the virtues from looking at the person as a whole person. And I, I love the muscle analogy. I think it's brilliant yeah. because I think it really helps uh, parents and teachers to understand how to look at the virtues from a more, more holistic perspective. It's tied. This our spiritual life is tied to our physical, like right, we, right. Our our spiritual growth happens through our physical choices. Yeah, yeah. The choices we make while we're living. I think that's a very beautiful way of of talking about the virtues. Maybe I think you should write a little book about it. Working on it. Working. Okay. There's okay. <laughs> all, this head mastering is getting in the way, as it should. <laughs> Yeah. Now we're about to close. I know you need to go, but I, ha- I always close my podcast asking my guest to answer one of two questions. You get to choose. Okay. So the first option is to give me a quote from a book that has had a huge impact on you or what book do you wish you had read sooner in your life and why? Oh, yes. That is a, that second one is a long list. Um, but at the, at the forefront is actually a pair of books that I, that pair well together that I um, did not read until end of college for one and then middle of seminary for the other. Um, but it would be Lewis's Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce. Uh, much of how I understand holiness and sin and virtue and vice is, is my segue to that was these two books. And then, and then it opened up to when you read enough Lewis, you realize he's just giving us the wisdom of ages past. And so you get to go back to Aquinas, you get to go back to Augustine and, and Aristotle and all of these folks. But I, I think I do wish that earlier in my life I had read those two books in a way that I could begin to grasp what they're after. I think they're fascinating in the sense that Screwtape Letters uses hell as a setting to teach us about virtue. And the great divorce uses heaven as a setting to teach us about vice. And Lewis, in his brilliance, is catching us off guard. You would think that the hell book is going to teach you about vices and the heaven book is going to teach you about virtues. But he inverts that in a way that catches us off guard enough for for us to actually see ourselves in in both of these stories. And um, so that that would be that would be too. There are. 
few. I just took a group of our seniors to to see Max McLean's performance of the Screw Tape Letters oh, Sunday yes. night. So, and we read. We I will read it with them in the fourth quarter this year. And the Great Divorce is is I, there are a few books that I go back and just read to enjoy as frequently as I do um, the Great Divorce. So I I do wish that earlier in my life I I encountered those books in a meaningful way and could begin to see. Um, what is there all along in the scriptures and in the Christian tradition of this, um, the, the kind of nuts and bolts of the virtues and vices and how it's, how God um, has built us to, to grow in these ways. So, so this is why we have these books in our Coram Deo high school yes. curriculum. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Well, thank you so much for uh, sharing your wisdom and your joy and your love for education with our listeners. I really appreciate having you on the show and you giving us your time today. Thank you, John. Absolutely. Likewise. Thank you for this podcast and all the other work you do to help spread the word as well. So thank you. Godspeed on that. Thank you. Thank you for listening. You can get involved in a few ways. There's a Facebook page where we actively discuss the ideas around classical education You can find us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. And if you want to help offset our production costs, you can support the podcast financially by going to www.classicaleducationpodcast.com forward slash support. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once said, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be in a few words this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know best of all what it is to behave under it as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. 